This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. Well, we made it through yet another gigantic storm. This one was on the icy side, which made travel impossible. Even snowshoeing proved difficult because of the ice. So I am sitting inside developing cabin fever. That is never a good thing for a gardener like me, because I end up over-ordering from all of my flower and seed catalogs. Speaking of flowers, I hope you all have a very nice Valentine's Day. According to some historians, Valentine's Day had its origins in Lupercalia, a Roman feasting day created to celebrate the end of the worst part of winter and the fertility of oncoming spring. Apparently, young Roman men chased young women through the streets, trying to hit them with bloody goat hides. Supposedly, being hit with a bloody goat hide would ensure the woman's fertility. I have to say, for the record, I am so glad this is no longer a practice associated with Valentine's Day. I would much rather receive a box of chocolates. Anyway, I think we've got a great show for you today. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Gail Ridge about that menace called Asian jumping worms. Dr. Ridge is an internationally renowned entomologist who works for the state of Connecticut's Agricultural Experiment Station. And she has a lot to say about the latest findings regarding these worms. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Dr. Gail Ridge an entomologist who works at the Agricultural Experiment Station for the state of Connecticut. A highly accomplished research scientist, Dr. Ridge is very knowledgeable about the latest findings regarding the Asian jumping worm. And we are going to discuss this menace along with recommendations for ridding your property of these worms. Dr. Ridge, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This topic of jumping worms is certainly an issue for many, many gardeners, and we're just so grateful that you're willing to talk to us and maybe give us some tips about Asian jumping worms. But before we jump into that, could you tell our listeners about your position with the state of Connecticut and about the work that you do? Well, I am actually a trained entomologist, and my duties with the state of Connecticut is as an insect identifier. So uh, folks uh, come to me with all kinds of insects and also mites and ticks. Those are other arthropod forms uh, for identification. And then I assist people with correcting the problem. You know, if you have pantry pests, then I can tell folks how to uh, correct the problem with a 
beetle that they found in their flower. So that's my duties. And my research is currently with human feeding bed bugs and also with people who have to deal with delusions of infestations, which is this belief of being infested by insects or mites or other parasites. But in the mainstream of my work, which is public inquiries, the jumping worm, the Asian jumping worm inquiries, literally <laughs> jumped <laughs> this year. And so I, by total accident, have become fairly knowledgeable about them. Well, that's wonderful. Now, could you please tell our listeners what exactly are Asian jumping worms and where do they come from? Asian jumping worms come from Southeast Asia. They are a different line of worms from the European worm. We have about 30 species of European worms in North America that were introduced through colonial trading, the movement of plant material over the last two or three hundred years. The Asian worms, more recent, we have about 16 species to date present here in the United States in about 38 states. Again, it is a consequence of international trade, particularly in the last 20 to 25 years, where trade has increased exponentially across the Pacific. Shipping lines and uh, ports where goods and services are transferred have been foci for the introduction of this these particular worms. So would you say that they're entrance to the United States was primarily agricultural? I mean, they came in on the soil of plants that were being brought over from other countries? Uh, no, the initial introductions were the result of them being used as fishing bait. And then goods and services followed that. But it was a use for fishing that brought the first populations to the United States. Is there any earthworm that is considered native to North America, or are they all considered invasive? There are a few native earthworms, but the populations are very small. They tend to aggregate in sort of low, wet areas here in the United States. But the earthworms per se were generally wiped out by the last ice age with the uh, glacial ice sheets covering much of the United States. It basically scraped the soil away and killed off the worms. So earthworms per se are as we see them, are not actually native to North America. So the entire North American ecosystem evolved following the Ice Age, independent of earthworm activity. Now, I have earthworms in my garden, and they don't seem to pose much of a problem. Tell me why these Asian jumping worms are different. I think one of their characteristics is they live for a year. European earthworms can live for several years, and so their biology is more relaxed, more easygoing. Uh, they don't have to reproduce frantically to get through one season, whereas the Asian jumping worms, when the cocoons hatch in May and June, you can have a population density of up to 200 individuals per square meter. And that's at peak, and then those population numbers drop as you move on into the adult stage and during the summer and the uh, autumn. So there's a very high reproductive level with these particular worms. Additionally, they can be easily identified by this jumping worm because they're extremely active. They whip, much like snakes. Some states have some very odd names for them. Kansas, they, they're called disco worms. That's kind of a light relief. <laughs> uh, <compared. laughs> 
Disco worms. Disco worms, yes. Josie is a little more, a little more pragmatic and they're nicknamed wigglers. But generally, countrywide, they're they're addressed as crazy worms or crazy snake worms or jumping worms. Jumping worms is a good figurative name simply because they're very physical. They're very muscular. They're large, uh, very distinguishable worms. I was just going to ask you that. How can you tell an Asian jumping worm from, say, your, I want to use the word normal, although (laughs) that's the wrong word, your normal earthworm? Yeah, everyday are there defining worm. characteristics? Yes, there are. The Asian jumping worm, and as well as the European worms, have a collar. It's called the clitellum, and that's behind the head. It's, it's the area where they do their reproduction. With the Asian jumping worm, it's quite close to the head, whereas with the European worms, it's further away from the head. It is also flush the clitellum in the Asian jumping worm is very flush with the body. It's not bulging out like you see with the European earthworms. And it also circles the entire body, whereas with the European earthworms, it tends to only be about on the top half of the body. The other distinguishing characteristics is the Asian jumping worm has a distinctive coloration difference between the top and the bottom. So on the dorsal surface, it's dark. On the ventral or the belly, it's much lighter in color. It also has this iridescent rainbow sheen to it, which is, you know, you could consider attractive, but it is a feature of this particular worm. So the European earthworms, their clitellums or their their reproductive collars they're proud. They are domed. So those are characteristics that you can see. And also the European earthworms tend to be more pink in coloration. I see. Now, what about length? Are they the same length as other earthworms you might find in the garden? Uh, depending on the species. Jumping worms can be six to eight inches in length as adults. They can be very large. But also there are certain European uh, earthworms like the lumbricus worms that are also large. And so for the uninitiated or educated, uh, you can confuse them. Right. Apparently, one characteristic would be when you disturb them, they do this, as you were alluding to earlier, this crazy jumping dance. Yeah, they thrash. And so if you actually hold one, you can feel this, you know, powerful little creature just whipping, whipping around. Right. Now, apparently, it's not just the adult worms that are a concern. It, they lay a, a great number of cocoons every year. Could you talk about their cocoons and their, their eggs? They're constantly producing cocoons once they become adults. And the cocoons is a very resilient stage. It's basically a case in which the eggs or embryos are protected. And you can have cocoons in what might be described as cocoon banks. Depending on the temperatures and the location, a cocoon can stay closed for up to two years. So you can actually, even during the summer months, have cocoons in the soil that have not opened. And those will then go on through the following winter into the spring. The cocoons are awfully difficult to see in the soil. They're very small, they're round, they're brown. 
One trick I have been told that you can do is to get a spade of soil and put it into a bucket of water that you're suspicious of, wait for about an hour, and the cocoons will float to the surface. So then, you know, we're getting back to when activity uh, starts. Uh, cocoons, again, produced by uh, reproductive adults, and they can do this without mating. It's parthenogenesis throughout the uh, warm weather months. And then you get into November and the adults die. They, they can't tolerate the cold. Then you'll have the six months from November to April, which is just purely cocoons. And then you get the juveniles emerging. While there's still cocoons sitting there in the soil between May and June, that's where you have the highest population numbers. It is very difficult to identify a juvenile jumping worm. They don't have these distinctive features like the clitellum, the collar. They just look like any other worm. Come to late June, into July, August, September, and October, you get the adults. It takes about 90 to 120 days for an embryo to develop into a full adult worm. And now, what color are the cocoons? If, if we did put them in water and they rose to the surface, what color would they be? Dull brown. Dull Th- brown. This is why they are so difficult to distinguish with the naked eye, unless you're an expert. For right. regular folks, it's very difficult. And I have been told they're roughly the circumference of a fertilizer bead, the type of commercial yes. fertilizer bead that you would some people yeah. buy in uh, plastic <laughs> containers. Very non exactly. In other words, it's a very nondescript size. Right, right. Now, maybe you can tell me if this is true or not. I've also been told that they uh, they leave a telltale sign behind them once they've gone through an area. That will be the change in the soil composition. These worms feed right at the surface of the soil. Many of the European earthworms can go deeper into the soil, but these stay right close to the surface and are having a wonderful time here in the northeastern forests eating the leaf litter. And they have a particular enzyme that can break down the cellulose in leaf litter. And because of the high-level activity, they create a churning action in the soil and homogenize the top layer of soil which makes it hard for native plants to establish. Native plants need a sort of strata system that helps thermoregulate the soil temperatures for the root systems. It manages the movement of nutrients through the soil at a slower rate. With these worms, because they basically make a monoculture of soil, it's just basically a very black granular soil with a sort of constitution of grape nuts. Some people say it's like ground beef. It's very dark, very, very black in coloration. You know, when you pull the leaf litter away, it's very, very distinctive. It's not this sort of honey, dark brown soil. It's, it's very black, very damaged. Right. So now your ordinary earthworm will leave the occasional casting at the top of a a hole when they're going into the soil. However, with the Asian jumping worms, you're seeing an entire, you may see several square feet of their castings, which uh, look like a ground hamburger, basically. Absolutely. 
It's a sheet of leaving right. worms. Yeah, well, these nice little piles. Exactly. Now, do these castings have any nutritional merit whatsoever? Do they get well, back into the soil, or, or or is the worm completely hoarding all of the beneficial nutrients that it gets from eating the soil? Uh, no, they're not hoarding it. They're just changing chemistry. I, on my own property, have uh, faced these worms. And I'm in I'm a relatively isolated area, so these things work their way in by themselves. They've self-introduced. So what I did was actually do a mini test, taking soil samples from undamaged soil on my property. It's pretty noticeable. The normal soil on my property is a sandy loam. Once the jumping worms came in, it became a loam. Non-worm soil was medium-high in organic matter, but once the worms came in, it was very high in organic material. The acidity in soil became more acid with the worms. Also, um, nitrogen, nitrate nitrogen in the undamaged soil was medium, six parts per million. With the nitrate nitrogen of the earthworm soil, it was extremely high, 50 parts per million. If you have uh, high nitrogen, it can cause harm to the plants and actually can also leach into the groundwater. The big one for me was the phosphorus. The soil on my property in its natural state was low at 12 parts per million. In the um, worm soil, it was 75 parts per million. Ammonium nitrate, low, 12 parts per million on normal soil in my property with the ammonium nitrate with the worms, 215 parts per million. So... That's they, very, yeah. dis, so, very disquieting. <laughs> very disquieting. So what yes. they've done is caused the nitrate nitrogen, the ammonium nitrogen, the phosphorus and potassium basically to go through the roof by their activities. And all of these affect young plants and germination. So that's just a snapshot of uh, me doing some soil tests on my own property. So you can see why when people go through the forests, which have been infested with these worms, you see that the understories kind of disappeared. And so they are actually creating a new habitat. With that, they are encouraging the invasives. The invasive plants love them. Guess what? The Japanese barberry. That's coming from Southeast Asia. Thrives in this kind of altered soil. The common buckthorn and multiflora rose also do very well. Sugar maples, red maples, and red oaks struggle. So, you know, we're dealing with a fundamental shift in the soil ecology when these worms are introduced. Well, I'm almost rendered speechless because (laughs) the information is just so, it's so staggering the effect that they can have in their castings that they leave behind, they're actually altering the composition of the soil. Completely. Chemistry and and structure of the soil, completely. And it's the first inch of the soil, would you say? The first top? And that's the top three inches of the soil. Top three inches, okay. Basically that top layer. 
which is good. It's nice to see that they don't go deep because they are, are up on the surface. And so that may be the Achilles heel that we need to get at them. That is so good to hear. I have read articles that say that they move very quickly. How much ground can they cover in a single season? Seeing how they're active, I would probably say that uh, individual populations hypothetically could probably, you know, move half a mile a year. Did you say half a mile? Half a mile. They can move half a mile a year? They can. I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble because it's just so astonishing to me that they can move so fast. It's because of the high reproductive level. And, you know, once they get through a particular area and they run out of food, then the populations will spread. And they can, they, when, when these worms get onto the surface, they can scoot along the surface very quickly. Is it true they can cross the street and go into your neighbor's yard? Yes, absolutely. Have no problems with it. You know, this is starting to sound more and more like something out of that movie Aliens with Sigourney <laughs> Weaver. You can also, yeah, or do. (laughs) Yeah, I I guess my question would be the altered soil composition that they leave behind Mm. is really, they're preparing that soil to make it optimal for the cocoons. Yeah, and also because they're South Asian, the exotic invasive plants from that region have adapted to these worms in evolution. And so now these worms have provided a more hospitable environment for these exotic plants and invasive plants to thrive. They don't like pine litter or pine stand litter, and they don't particularly like open lawns or grassy areas. They like deciduous forest floor areas, that kind of ecosystem. Well, that does not bode well for our forest. Can you tell me what is there, if anything, can be done to to stem the spread of these worms? Yeah. Well, what has happened in this last year, and I think it may be part of the effect of the COVID pandemic. People have stayed home. People have done more activity in their yards. And certainly prior to 2021, I would get one or two calls a year about these worms. Last year, towards the end of the summer, into the fall, my phone was ringing off the hook all over Connecticut. And it certainly makes me wonder whether the increase of people moving into more rural areas, getting out of the cities, staying at home, working at home, spending more time in the yards, going out and picking, buying plants and exchanging plants, and generally doing more activity in and around the home has enhanced the population and increased them and spread them. But there is some hope. In addition to the increase of inquiries, I was getting calls about a natural predator of earthworms. These worms are called the hammerhead worms. They're planarians, and that means that they are flat worms with a triangular head. They can specifically regenerate body parts, so if a bit falls off, they can easily regenerate it. And they like moisture. And towards the end of the summer, in late September into October, more calls were coming in of saying, we got these weird worms in my property. And 
they send photographs in them, and they are of this um, these hammerhead worms. And these hammerhead worms were introduced from Southeast Asia, the very area that these jumping worms come from. And jumping worms are controlled in the Southeast Asian uh, ecosystems by predation. So we've got natural predators who are still figuring out the new kid in the sandbox, as well as these planariums. And basically what these um, hammerhead worms do is they smell out the earthworm. They, they follow the secretions of their prey. Okay, and then they wrap themselves very quickly around the prey and pierce the worm with their everted pharynx and sort of pin them down. And they actually can use a toxin called tetrodotoxin will kill the prey. They are strong enough to handle a prey 55 times larger than themselves. The other predators of these worms are native salamanders, but also creatures such as toads, snakes, weasels, rats, moles, pigs, raccoons, the American robins, woodcocks, ants, butterflies, centipedes, ground beetles, and mites. So we've got an army of predators they haven't quite realized there's this new worm in the ecosystem. But I think they're going to start to kick in and go after it. I just wanted to ask you about birds, since this is the Bird Harder podcast. I have read articles that have said that, unlike other earthworms, this Asian jumping worm can retain toxic levels of heavy metals that are naturally found in the ground, making them mm. quite unpalatable, especially to birds. I would like to just like to know, is there has there been any research on the robin? I mean, you mentioned the robin will eat them. I don't think so. I think it's more anecdotal mention in papers. I think certainly more studies should be done. We're still relatively new in the game on this. But woodcocks and American robins have been seen to eat these things. Now, how much are they eating? You know, is it what percentage in the diet? I just don't know. I know chickens have been used to eat them, but the chickens tend to stop eating them after a while. So, And again, this problem of the movement of heavy metals in these worms is a big issue. You don't particularly want your poultry to be loading up on heavy metals. It could be that they, they will have a jumping worm as a, as a snack every so often, but not actually incorporate it into the main part of the diet. Right. I certainly, if I had free-range chickens in my yard eating these Asian jumping worms, I certainly mm. would not eat the eggs mm. because of the well, uh, heavy metal. Yeah, it's exactly. I would be standing on the side of caution at this time. Principal researchers, Joseph Gores up in the University of Vermont is one of the leading lights as far as earthworm, jumping worm research is concerned. I know there's been some talk about doing some research on birds, but at this point, basically what we're trying to do is find out ways of being able to stop these things. I wanted to ask you about a, a few methods that people have been talking about. I don't know if you've seen Facebook, but there are several support groups for people whose gardens have been infested with Asian jumping worms, and there literally are emotional support groups because people are so upset 
to yeah. see their their beautiful native gardens being basically ground up and spit out mm-hmm. by these worms, and they're very concerned too about surrounding trees and uh, nearby forests. So I did see on one in one article that it may be possible to cook these worms using plastic mulch, but it has to reach uh, certain temperatures for several days in order to be effective. It apparently will kill the worms and the cocoons. Have you uh, seen any research on this method? Yes, they do. It suggests uh, we go, you have to get ambient temperatures up. So you're looking at late spring into the summer. Basically, what you do is cover moistened soil or mulch with a sheet of clear plastic for about two to three weeks. What they are trying to do is to drive up the soil temperatures to exceed 104 degrees Fahrenheit for three days. Again, we're looking at situations of activities that are rather intensive as far as time is concerned and also labor intensive. But one product that seems to be pretty good at killing them, it takes time to do it. And it's actually a product that's used in golf courses a great deal to keep worms down, is tea seed meal. Okay, it's an organic fertilizer. It's non-toxic, and it irritates the worms to the point of slowly killing them. And the suggestion time for treatment or application of the tea seed meal is between uh, late April into early May through the summer. Okay, there are also scientists are also looking at the efficacy of a compound known as saponin, S-A-P-O-N-I-N. It's a product that has high levels in a plant called the uh, soap wort plant, and it is actually used in traditional soap making, and actually good for you. It supports your immune system and balances your cholesterol levels, and it's organic, and it seems to really harm the jumping worm. So uh, tea seed meal is something you might consider putting down in your yard. Well, that is great to hear because the majority of my listenership were not only native gardeners, but we're also organic and we yes. don't want to harm other organisms or uh, mm. birds or mammals or butterflies with whatever it is mm. we're going to use to get rid of these Asian jumping worms. So I, it sounds to me like it's going to be a plan of attack will be multifaceted, yes. keeping an eye on their spread, applying these preparations like the tea seed meal to keep them from spreading even further, and then also hand-picking, too. Yes. Can you talk fact, about hand-picking? Yeah, hand-picking. Um, <laughs> down south, it's a very popular um, activity, and actually people make careers out of this. This is called worm grunting. Oh. I'm not sure whether anybody's heard about worm grunting, but actually if you go onto YouTube, there's a, some very interesting videos on how to worm grunt. Um, basically, what you do is you get a two-inch wide stick, which is called a stop, and you hammer it into the ground, and then you use a flat iron and rub it rhythmically across the top of the stick. And what that does is, according to anecdotal chatter, it conveys to the worms the presence of possibly a mole, and so the mo- worms will jump out of the soil, and you can then handpick them. So one person can grunt with a stick and then another person can run around and pick up these earthworms. Apparently it is a skill. So it was something that you just can't 
get an immediate result. You have to sort of work on it. But handpicking using raking, since these worms are close to the surface, if you use a rake or a hoe, you can pick a lot of worms up using rakes, like leaf rakes, scratching the surface. It disturbs them, and they'll, they'll jump out, and then you can just grab them, throw them into a bucket, and drown them. You can also throw them on a hot driveway and cook them. In 10 minutes, they're, they're done. Or you can put them into a plastic bag and then put them out in the sun and kill them. But never throw them back onto your property because some individuals may survive that stress and then go on and become more trouble. If you're buying plants, I would highly suggest that you buy root bare stock, not plants that are in pots, because that has been certainly seen as a major route for introduction of these things in, in to properties. So have bare roots when you purchase um, plantings. So you're saying they're, uh, we don't know for sure, but it's possible that these worms are spreading via mail order nursery plants that people order for their yards? Absolutely. If it's bare root, you're going to be all right. And I would suggest once if you get a shipment through the Amazon or any other major distribution entity, you wash the roots in cold water just to make sure there's nothing caught in the root hairs and then plant. Will the Asian jumping worm lay their cocoons in a root system? Yes, they will aggregate to plant roots, particularly if there's a drought. They will go to tree root systems and nursery root systems, nursery plant systems, because it's cooler and it's moisture there, moister than in the open. So, yes, they can aggregate around plants. My goodness, I'm going to need Prozac by the time this interview is over. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Really, it's very, very uh, distressing. But I'm so glad that there are methods being put into place. Where did the spread actually begin? Shipping ports. The major sea lanes through the Great Lakes, Chicago area, New York area, Miami. Anywhere where there's an international port, that's where they got going first. And then it spread out. It's like they're not going in a wave, in a line. They're spreading as if you um, sprinkled pepper on top of mashed potatoes. You've got all these spots that they were introduced, and then they're spreading out from those spots. So you would, you no, would look at goodness. places where there's a lot of nursery industry. They would be spreading out from those nursery industry areas and then uh, following, you know, forested areas, valley areas. Right. Now, uh, how important is it? Let's say I go out in my yard this spring and summer and I see these Asian jumping worms mm-hmm. uh, and I'm in New Hampshire. Do I need to contact New Hampshire state officials and let them know that they're here in this area? You'd have to, for each state, you'd have to consult the state figure who would be overseeing that. I would say the USDA office would be the best place to approach. They usually have a handle on this, not only in the state, but also they are, you know, working interstate as well. So they'd be able to give you the leadership that you need. Now, which states in New England do we know actually have jumping worms at this point? All of them, every one of them, and they're up into Ontario, Canada now. So yeah, all of, all through throughout New England, uh, right across Ohio into Illinois, Wisconsin, 
Minnesota. There's high populations all the way, all in this sort of quadrat of northeast United States. Wow. Mm. Okay, I didn't realize it was that bad already. Yeah, yeah. It's, My it's goodness. Quite extensive. Other things that people can do is be very careful when you're buying mulch and compost. If there's mulching or composting, it needs to be in a closed space like a concrete trough, some where they cannot escape. So you need to, when you're buying anything like uh, mulch or compost, you need to know how that mulch and compost was heated. Because you can't be in a situation where these uh, worms can step out of the heat and go into a cooler location and then get through that heating process, which they're perfectly capable of doing. Wow. Use your driveway as a sanitization. Uh, so on a hot afternoon, spread your compost or mulch that you've purchased out on the driveway. I would suggest, you know, have a tarp underneath so you don't make a mess. And then cook it in the sun. And that can certainly cause enough stress to not possibly kill them immediately, but will will knock them down. I'm using your driveway as a oven to kill possible introductions of the worms in in mulch or compost is an option. Wow. Well, this has all been very sobering. Yes, it has been, but there is hope. We've never not conquered the problem. We have, as I said, a lot of predatorial allies who really are getting to the point of figuring out that there is a new prey in the ecosystem that they can use, and there's lots of them. So now in the future, I think the predators, the natural predators, such as the cluster flies, will find these worms and will take advantage of this new food source. I'd like to thank Dr. Gail Ridge for joining us today. Please see our show notes for more information about Asian jumping worms and what can be done to stop their spread. Join Americans everywhere in the One Third for the Birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.